Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hi, everyone. Vicki Vasilega here. Thanks for listening in to today's COVID-19 podcast. Today's feature podcast is from a COVID-19 webinar recorded earlier that you may have missed or may want to hear again. So let's listen in as our content matter experts share their experiences and recommendations for optimal patient care and operational strategies. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to ASHP's podcasts. I now have the great privilege of introducing Brian, who's going to talk about some exciting next steps in the field of research. And I have the privilege of accepting. So thank you all for attending here today and for the opportunity to present. I'm going to focus on the next phase of the ACT trial, the ACT-2 portion of the trial. And so just a reminder, this is uh, this trial was set up as an adaptive trial. So as Scott discussed, this means that it has a relatively set group of medical institutions that are involved, as well as a, a similar basic trial structure. But after each phase of the trial, new experimental arms are going to be added based on the results of previous phases that have occurred. So in this case, remdesivir now becomes part of the control group as a standard of care And added to that in the experimental group is the medication baricitinib. So as an ID specialist, my first thought was, what is that medication? Don't know it, never heard of it. Um, And, you know, I just thought it was an interesting choice, um, having no idea what it was before. But at this point, I'd like to give you a little background on why this rheumatoid arthritis drug uh, is actually a pretty interesting option as the next therapy to be evaluated. So as you can see on this slide, As soon as the pharmacotherapy and the pathophysiology of hyperimmune activation in severely ill COVID-19 patients was appreciated, rheumatologic disease-modifying therapies quickly started being used to treat these patients. Probably the one that was most discussed and utilized both in clinical trials and off-label thus far has been tocilizumab. This is an anti-IL-6 receptor monoclonal antibody. And you can see here on the right side of the slide, roughly where it acts in this process, uh, in addition to its other IL-6 inhibitor um, cousins. One of these monoclonal antibodies would definitely have been my bet for the next therapy tested in the ACT trial. Um, however, you know what we have is baricitinib, and so you can see here on the right side, again, that baricitinib also does have its effect in this same pathway, but at a downstream step through inhibition of the Janus kinase, or JAK, signaling pathway. These are intracellular enzymes that respond to cytokine and growth factor receptor stimulation of multiple types, only one of which is IL-6, to influence downstream hematopoiesis and immune cell function. I think this is noteworthy because elevated levels of a host of cytokines are found in these patients. So in any case, baricitinib would be just one of the many promising options for attenuating this particular pathway, but with respect to baricitinib, that's just one part of the story. So artificial intelligence and machine learning were being used to assist in the identification of pre-existing drug candidates that would both have activity in the anti-inflammatory pathways of disease pathogenesis, as we already mentioned on the right side of the slide, as well as some SARS-CoV-2-specific antiviral targets. And one of the antiviral targets identified early on was AP2-associated protein kinase 1, or AAK1, again, on the far left side of the slide in this case, you'll see that. 
and this is a mediator in the process of endocytosis, viral invasion into the host cell. Baricitinib ultimately was also found to be one of the hundreds of candidate products evaluated that had the strongest binding affinity for and inhibition of AAK1. It also has binding affinity to cyclin G-associated kinase, or GAC, which is also here on the left side, another endocytosis co-regulator. So as you can see in the graphic, baricitinib has a third action, and which is having down-regulatory effects on cytokines IL-4 and interferon gamma, just below where you saw the previous section. This is particularly important later in the process of SARS-CoV-2 infection. While ACE2 is used as a co-receptor for viral invasion in the initial stages of infection, ACE2 also has a protective effect against lung injury inflicted by the activation of the renin-angiotensin system in the later stages of tissue injury. Therefore, blocking down-regulation of ACE2 later in the disease pathogenesis may be beneficial in avoiding progression of pneumonia. So after all this, we see that this medication has pretty promising potential activity in three individual distinct phases of COVID-19 infection. So I just wanted to spend a minute to familiarize you with the basic pharmacologic characteristics of baricitinib, if like me, you're also pretty unfamiliar with this medication. In the event that it does end up being found to be an effective agent in this new phase of the clinical trial, all of you who decided to call in today are going to have a little leg up on your colleagues who are scrambling around for information like this. So one key piece to note is that the dosing regimens typically studied for RA have already been shown in vitro and in modeling studies to have the physiological effects on signaling pathways discussed in the previous slide, which we can't really often say for many of the other therapies that have so far been repurposed for COVID-19. You'll see here that the dosing regimens that have been studied, two milligrams um, in combination with methotrexate for rheumatoid arthritis, that's the FDA-approved dosing regimen. Um, there was also a dosing regimen of four milligrams that was also studied. It was shown to have relatively similar efficacy with the two milligram dose, but was associated with a number of different rates of adverse effects that were higher. So hence the two milligram dose was what was moved forward with respect to FDA approval. However, four milligram doses have been studied and continue to be studied um, for autoimmune indications. Most of the PKPD parameters are quite favorable with this therapy, as you'll see, bioavailability, minimal effect either way on the SIP system, et cetera. In terms of renal elimination, dose adjustment for chronic therapy in RA is done with creatinine clearances less than 60, and the drug is not recommended with a creatinine clearance less than 30. As you'll see in the clinical trial, only the latter recommendations being maintained due to the relatively short duration of therapy that's being proposed for COVID-19. While we're mentioning the relatively short duration, it's noteworthy that the half-life of baricitinib is around 12 hours, and approximately 90% of medication is eliminated within 24 hours. I think you'll likely agree this is a relatively favorable medication from a pharmacologic perspective, especially if it's being utilized for combination therapy, as in the ACT trial, with its minimal drug interaction potential. There's a number of notable black box warnings that exist with baricitinib, and particularly some that are relevant from a COVID-19 perspective. Many of these adverse events described with baricitinib therapy have manifest at higher rates with the four milligram dose compared to two milligrams, as mentioned earlier, specifically those including herpes zoster, malignancies, and VTE. Increased rates of VTE are particularly notable, specifically at the four milligram dose, although overall absolute incidence has been shown to be fairly low. At the higher end in studies, up to two VTEs for every 100 person years of follow-up overall. 
So on the plus side, we're again only giving this medication for a short duration of therapy in this case, and it has a short half-life, as we've discussed, instead of indefinitely, as we might with RA. So at the same time, COVID-19 disease itself clearly sets patients up in a hypercoagulable state, as we've discussed and Logan detailed. So this is an adverse event clearly worth considerable attention and monitoring as we move forward. I want to quickly introduce you to the one clinical report that's been published to date on baricitinib. Now, I have no intention of either hyping it or taking the time to fully tear apart a study with only 24 patients. It just is what it is. But this is just to show that there are some minimal clinical data in addition to all the hypothetical information that I've presented thus far. In this report, all patients had relatively mild disease with, like, with less than seven days from symptom onset and couldn't have been ventilated at the time of enrollment. It was a simple convenience sample of 12 baricitinib plus lopinavir-ritonavir-treated patients compared to the immediate 12 patients that were treated before the change from hydroxychloroquine to baricitinib in their own institutional standard of care treatment regimen. Baseline characteristics were relatively well-matched given the sample size. You can see that in a number of clinically important endpoints, baricitinib appeared to signal a positive effect, whereas the standard of care group seemed to largely progress as one might expect typical COVID patients to progress over a two-week period. They also didn't see any immediate adverse effects. However, these patients also don't appear to have been followed any longer than that 14-day period. So perhaps there's something here that gives us reason for encouragement with baricitinib. There's currently nine additional active registered trials in addition to ACT2 that are ongoing with baricitinib, and I'd like to reintroduce the ACT2 trial now. So again, a reminder, ACT2 is the next phase of the NIH adaptive clinical trial, which now has remdesivir in the control group compared with remdesivir plus baricitinib. Note baricitinib again being given at the higher four milligram dose in the experimental group. The inclusion criteria and planned sample size are listed on the left, and they're consistent with the approach from ACT1. In both groups, remdesivir is being given for up to 10 days of therapy or stopped upon discharge, and baricitinib is being given for 14 days or similarly stopped upon discharge. You can see that the time points planned for follow-up assessment are listed 15, 22, and 29 days, as well as the clinical endpoints that are being proposed for ACT2 below the graph. All of these are fairly similar in structure to those that were used in ACT1. For the primary endpoint, they're looking for that movement down into levels six or below that Scott described earlier. Finally, I just wanna highlight the expansion of exclusion criteria in ACT2 that are necessary due to the potential adverse effects or confounding aspects of including baricitinib or really any immune modulating therapy in a trial like this. Leukopenias, other immunosuppressive therapies, concern, for those susceptible to the adverse effects already mentioned of VTEs and other infectious processes. I'd like you to take away that despite any promise that baricitinib may appear to have, I wouldn't be prescribing this currently off-label to any of my COVID patients because the proper place for investigation and monitoring is in the context of a structured and well-designed clinical trial. And I think that this slide helps to make that pretty clear. So with that, I think we're all done and I think we'll be excited to take any questions that you might have. listening in today. For more information, please be sure to check out the ASHP COVID-19 Resource Center at ashp.org backslash COVID-19.
Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.